This is Covered Calls with Kevin Simpson, featuring expert insights and analysis from the industry's top investment professionals. If you'd like a deeper understanding of today's markets, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of our Covered Call podcast. My guest for this show is Jeff Concepcion, the founder and CEO of Stratus Wealth Partners. He is also the host of the Evolving Advisor podcast, where he has interviewed some of the industry's top thought leaders. And Jeff, you're on episode 62. Congratulations. Great to be here, Kevin. Thank you for the invite. Thank you so much. In today's show, we're going to cover the current state of the independent advisor space. But first, I just have a few background questions for you. Uh, I know you were in the business for 20, 25 years, kind of on the corporate side before you started Stratos, but could you have picked a better month maybe than October of 2008? Uh, the timing was interesting for sure. And, and I don't know that sometimes when you're in the midst of a chaotic uh, stage like that, that it's it's not even advantageous. It's, it didn't hinder us, uh, but it was certainly interesting timing, trying to build a business and tell a new story to advisors when they were in the midst of you know managing a lot of uh, emotions from clients. So- can, can you take us back to that time a little bit and just talk about what motivated you to start the company, how, how, how you made that leap? Because so many financial advisors who are on the corporate side are curious about what it's like in the independent space. And I know we're going to get into it next about you know what, what life looks like, but just if you could briefly take us back to how it felt when you started the firm. Sure. Yeah. I'd like to say that I was entrepreneurially motivated and I felt I was an entrepreneur, but it took me being fired for cause and thrown out of a 23-year employment to start my own business. And I, in, in all honesty, I think I <clears throat> was upset for a day. <clears throat> and after that, I was just grateful for the opportunity to build my own business. And we've had a tremendous amount of fun. So I was actually shown the door and given the opportunity to kind of work on a model that I felt would resonate um, that was quite different from the firm that I had grown up in. So, not the answer I was expecting. But sometimes when you burn the bridges, you uh, if if you find that inner strength. Congratulations! Yeah. Because thank you. We, we all know what the firm is now. Boy, what a, what an incredible story! Thank how, you. How, how you know? And, and how did you get started in, in doing the podcast too? Because thinking of the the business model of of independent financial advisors, I mean. That, that's a, a far different stretch than than the media, but I've watched a few of them, including the videos you have on the website. I mean, it's really natural, very well done. How, how did that come about? Yeah, my passion is really around helping advisors become entrepreneurs and CEOs, and the two aren't necessarily congruent. A lot of times they're great at giving advice and, and getting clients, but as far as creating infrastructure and scaling up a business and having focus and systems and processes. So the more we've focused on sharing best practices, even with our most fierce competitors, uh, which I do often, uh, the more it's sort of come back full circle and benefited us. So I just love the idea of, of helping advisors think about how to become better entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business owners, create greater experiences for their clients and more ultimate success for their teams and their families. What is something like, how, what does that process look like? The emotional, the, the uh, intellectual, the professional decisions that go into going independent. I mean, this is sort of an open-ended question where you can kind of let, let us into your world a little bit. We work with independent financial advisors all over the country. And I mean, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful people, to your point, great business folks. But uh, making that decision, making that leap, I'm sure has tremendous emotional um challenges as well. And I, I just like to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think it's less like the you know early pioneers because today independence isn't quite so unknown. 
uh, where I live in Cleveland, Ohio, it's a Western Reserve, which means folks from where I grew up and the, on the East Coast in Connecticut specifically came out this way. They had no idea what they were going to find. And I think if you go a couple decades back, that would have been true for big wire and bank advisors when, that went independent. And while there's some pioneering done today, the stage has been set. So many advisors have seen friends and peers and associates go independent and build firms either on their own or in conjunction with platforms like ours. And they know that there's more autonomy and they know that there's more open architecture. Uh, they know that there are more interesting uh, ways that they can serve clients through technology, through products, through solutions. So I think it's just people wrapping their heads around the fact that they know that as they sort of embark on this adventure, that there'll be bumps. They're leaving a mothership that where they've generally you know, developed their businesses, but they've also seen that it's been done. Uh, and for those who are really, really entrepreneurial, they may want to do all aspects of independence on their own. And for others, they may want to just focus and control on the things that they really want to have control on, which in many cases gives opportunity for shops like ours. Most folks don't go independent because they want to study and analyze every technology option or be involved in billing or regulatory oversight or compliance or real estate or HR. There are things that they want to control. And in either case, uh, there are lots of great, great ways that they can have more autonomy on what they do and how they do it. I imagine there's still a little bit of strength in numbers from a negotiating standpoint when you have a, a collective, when you, when you have a network of, of folks working together, even though each advisor is going to have a, a independent business model and their own practice, being able to have some support without the complete tether of it, like you said, a mothership makes uh, makes great sense. So what's the value add? And when we're thinking about looking for platforms or that complete independent channel, what are some of the pluses and minuses? And you can speak specifically on Stratus if, if, um, if that's okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'll speak more broadly initially, but I think in general, uh, you hit it on the head. I had a conversation with a team recently who's looking to affiliate with us. Very, very successful. They have their own RIA already. And that's an interesting spin in this, by the way. A lot of folks, when they set up their own firms, didn't entirely know what they didn't know. And when they became independent and understood the great aspects of that, as well as some of the encumbrances, some of them sort of came to a conclusion five, 10, 15 years out that maybe supported independence made more sense for them. So while I was having a conversation with a firm, they looked at affiliating with us and they're sizable. So if there was a eight or nine point clip off the top for the services we provide, in their case, that was close to 400 grand. Uh, and, and it's exactly what you just pointed out, Kevin, very astutely. And that is, you know, with scale, are there benefits? So I asked them, I said, put, put me on mute for a minute and talk between yourselves, the two partners, with that 400 grand, what could you buy if you spent it on your own? And they were looking to bring in someone at a high level in compliance, in HR, maybe someone to oversee tech. And I think they came to the conclusion that with salary and, and you know, FICA, FUTA benefits and all that stuff, that they could buy three to three and a half bodies. And I'm a little worried about that half body. I don't know what that means. If it's like a Houdini cut them in half, but they felt that they could buy three and a half bodies. I said, in our shop, you'd get me, my leadership team, and north of 80 people that are deep, deep, deep in these eight or nine different segments. And they looked at each other and said, you know, I, I get it. I get it. For, you could spend 400 grand way, way more deeply than, than we could. And I think you kind of hit it on the head. So people can do it on their own and they will do it well. They don't, I don't think people need a platform like ours. If they want one or if they leverage it properly, I think the argument is oftentimes they're going to get a lot more and they can go further faster because of the bench strength, pricing benefits, uh, and just depth of resources that you wouldn't have in a smaller enterprise. The term that you used that I think resonated with me was supported independence. I mean, that really struck me as, as the, um, 
the, the beauty of the business model. Yeah, there's there's a lot there, and and I think supported independence in and of itself is an it's it's a really good descriptor, but it's also an overused term. Uh, we're in the Midwest here, so I'll consider myself a hillbilly by default. Uh, but I give the analogy: if you looked at two Ford F-150s from 50 yards away, they look identical. And I don't want to be critical, but I will make a call out that when you look at most independent firms, uh, if you lift up the engine of that Ford F-150, you got a really nice looking enterprise, but inside of it, it's being powered by a moped engine. And when you lift up ours because of the size and scale and the way that we've been built to really deliver a robust supported independence, you've got an eight cylinder diesel under the hood. And from a distance, it's hard for advisors to tell one from the other because they'll look more similar than they do different. So... Well, I think you should be proud of what you built, and it's uh, it, you know it's it would be odd if if you if you didn't brag a little bit. So congratulations and kudos. Thank talk you. to me about talk to me about valuations and M and A. I'm always fascinated by the value of RIA practices at this point. The trend that's happened. Uh, n knowing a very close friend personally that monetized the independent RIA and 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 be, being. Uh, exposed to what those numbers look like. I mean, it was fascinating and, and maybe even jaw dropping. Tell me and talk to me and teach me about what, what's up with M&A in the RIA space right now. Sure, yeah, the industry has really grown up a lot and really only in the last 10 years, I would say. Um, and in general, if that whole advisor CEO mentality, advisors have always focused on payout and income and they've thought less about balance sheet. Well, the reality of it was with a little bit of thought they're really sitting on super valuable assets, not just a stream of income, but a really valuable asset. And I would say the primary focus of our enterprise has been to coach and teach them how to uh, capture and, and build wealth inside of the business beyond just a paycheck. So I would say for the last several decades, our industry is, has sort of transferred from gener one generation to the next, more via the way of an earnout. Uh, with Live Oak entering, I don't know how long ago it was now, a dozen years ago, People started financing and putting down payments. Uh, people began very slowly, only in the last couple of years, to migrate into thinking about a business value more as a multiple of earnings than a multiple of gross revenue. So the wires and even the independent space perpetuated this notion of a two and a half times gross revenue. And I've always said that if you're sitting in Cleveland, Ohio, with a, with a firm doing a million dollars in revenue, or New York or New Jersey with a firm doing a million dollars in revenue, the EBITDA or the earnings is going to look very different because staffing costs are low here. Real estate costs are low here. But the industry for decades has said that a million dollars of revenue in New York City is worth 2.5 million. And the same is true in Cleveland. But if you look in Cleveland and that firm drops 600,000 to the bottom line versus a New York firm that drops $300,000 to the bottom line, I can't pay off a bank loan with gross revenue. I can only pay with free cash flow earnings or EBITDA. And I think advisors have now gotten savvy to the fact that how a business is run. And by the way, if it has too much EBITDA, that's not a good thing either, because it's not really a business, right? It's just a lifestyle practice where a million dollars of revenue, there's only a hundred grand of expenses with a part-time assist. That's not really a business. That's a lifestyle practice. So understanding where someone's got a business, they're running it well, running it efficiently and rewarding them for that really is kind of the evolution, I think, of thinking about earnings versus gross revenue. Uh, just quickly in terms of multiples, when you think about things from an EBITDA or EBOC perspective, and I'll stick with EBITDA, uh, EBOC being earnings uh, before owner's compensation, which I don't necessarily think is realistic because someone's got to run that business, right? Large enterprises don't sit there. I couldn't sit in 
um, you know, New Jersey or Naples for that matter and, and run a business, I'd need someone to do that. Um, scale, I would say, has probably created the most wild differences that we've seen. So at the smallest end of the spectrum, you'd see a small business with a five or six times uh, EBITDA. And you'd see gigantic enterprises trading at 21, 22, 23 times EBITDA. Uh, and it takes a lot of scale to go from that smaller practice to the highest you know, uh, stratosphere of, of multiple. I understand free cash flow. I understand EBITDA. And I'm not that um, bad at math. But you said in the 20s. Correct. Correct. North, north of 20 for sure. Yep. What, at what level does the practice need to be to warrant that type of multiple? Gigantic. Uh, it's got to be big. Um, you know, in most cases, you're talking about enterprises that are 10 billion or more in assets. You're looking at really, really healthy, you know, um, $10 million north of in, in, in earnings. And what differentiates, by the way, the practices that could be that size and not garner that is practices that are showing a penchant for growth. They've grown at really, really healthy rates. It could be uh, kagers of, you know, 25, 35, 45%. And it's tangible as to how they did it and that it's likely repeatable. So there's so a multi could, so that multiple has a growth component built into the calculation, not just a EBITDA number. Or exactly. So, exactly. So they've got to be big. They have to have illustrated healthy growth and be able to illustrate a capacity to probably grow on a really healthy basis going forward to be in that 21, 22, 23 times range. I, that you blew me away. I mean, I, I thought half of that was massive. Uh, yeah. Where, and, where, and by the way, you're right. You're right. If, go backwards, 36, 48 months, firms were trading at 15 times. And it's only the last couple of years where people have seen, you know, the, the free cash flow and kind of the health in some of these businesses and the propensity to grow where those multiples kept on clicking up. And I've got a handful of friends, all of whom have traded north of 20 with really good, healthy growing businesses, by the way. Where, where do you see valuations going over the next two, three, four, five years? Can that trend continue or are we peaking? Uh, I, I'm, I, I'd be a bad prognosticator because I thought a year or two it was over and a transaction I think got inked uh, a week or two ago at 23 and a half X. So I thought it would have been, and these things, you're absolutely right. Just like the markets are typically cyclical. It's a function of, you know, private equity and how much cash is out there and how much money is trying to be deployed. How many healthy businesses are there in a space where all the big, the biggest and best haven't already been rolled up. So I would have thought we'd be at the tail end of the cycle, but it doesn't seem, and, and again, even the markets, right? Uh, investors start to get nervous when I say investors, these PE funds, when they start to worry about what happens with firms that have grown more inorganically. They've taken on probably too much debt. The debt is costing more. Their billings are going down in this, you know, interesting cycles that we're in the last couple quarters. And so I think that we're at the tail end, but, you know, and if we are, by the way, it might mean that you have to wait three or four years before all those factors realign and multiples climb back up again. Well, it's an exciting business to be in. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless after the past segment, but uh, very, very exciting talk. Talk to me about the value proposition with Stratos, and you kind of already have in, in a you know in a very broad sense in, in some of the analogies. But if a financial advisor is thinking and considering independence, come to you. Talk talk a little bit about the value add because I, I, I like the idea of the supported independence, and I think the majority of advisors would as well. They want they are entrepreneurial, they are business folks, but at, at the same time, 
taking care of clients and putting client service first and performance and execution is, is I would think in the majority of cases going to supersede a- anything else on the administrative side. So, so you make, you make life a little bit easier. Making a big change is never easy uh, for anyone that's papered a book move, but, but having some support behind you is, uh, is probably a great thing. So if, talk, talk to me a little bit about the value add for Stratos specifically. Sure. I, you know, I think we come to the table reasonably well equipped with what I would call the table stakes, right? You have to have um, broad access to platforms. So we custody at Fidelity, Schwab, TD, Pershing, and then LPL is also a custodian and broker dealer for us. Um, you have to have a good technology package. Uh, you have to have you know a robust support in, in, in a whole host of areas that are the obvious ones, regulatory oversight, marketing, um, finance, financial planning. And I think we check the boxes adequately in all those places, as do many of our peers. If you ask me for the two biggest differences, I would say that practice management arm and how deeply we go in helping people build a blueprint of seeing the home that they live in today and what their dream home would be. And that dream home is really their business. If it evolved or iterated into the most successful version of what it could be, I think that helping with those blueprints and helping people execute on that. And it's deep. I mean, it's, you know, what do you look like today? Uh, how would you need to reinvest in your business? And, and and then that reinvestment could be technology, marketing, staffing, and we help in all those facets. So uh, that would be one key area is really the depth of the practice management. Uh, I think the second is M&A. Uh, we're really knowledgeable and really visible in the space, and we help advisors develop uh, healthy organic growth if they don't have it. Uh, if they do have it, we help them try to strengthen that. And then we complement it with inorganic growth. So when you think about scaling up, because all these folks, right, I work for all these enterprises, as does my whole team, these several hundred enterprises that use us as a platform partner, uh, helping them grow up and scale up with inorganic growth can be really, really material. A little 50, 75, $100 million tuck-in, depending on their size, every 18 to 24 months, uh, coupled with you know healthy organic growth. And some of these enterprises become quite big in and of themselves. So I'd say the practice management, helping them really evolve into businesses uh, and then really helping them refine a growth and service strategy uh, and then implement on those would really probably be the differentiators. The table stakes, we check the boxes, but lots of other firms do. Uh, Practice management, evolving into really successful CEOs and growth, organic and inorganic, to me would be probably the two most significant differences. Well, I think also, and I'll say it for you because you're too humble to say it yourself, but just having you as a personal coach, mentor, and and uh, someone to look up to, I think it would be great for so many folks looking to go independent. If we Thank wanted you. to learn more about Stratus, Jeff, where can we find out information about your firm and the possibilities of joining? Yeah, so I think uh, the Evolving Advisor podcast gives a lot of background. If you go to the homepage for Stratus Wealth Partners, it would provide some information there. And most importantly, you know, beyond the commercials, I encourage people to talk to partners at a firm that you're thinking about joining. I'd encourage you to randomly call anyone in our shop and just understand how some of these factors might have affected the health of their business. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jeff Concepcion, Stratus Wealth Partners. Thank you for the invite. This message does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase securities through CWP Advisory Services. Investments are not guaranteed and involves risk of loss. The views and opinions expressed in this message are those of investment professionals made at the time this content was recorded, are not necessarily the views and opinions of CWP, and may change in time without notification.
For additional information about CWP, visit CWP's or the SEC's website for a copy of our ADV Disclosure Brochure and Form CRS.